0: Hey, we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge Better understanding and a clear
1: direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor please like, share, and follow. Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed.
0: Welcome to another episode of Focus Ed, where we invite expert guests to join us. In this episode, we have John Almrode. John, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, good afternoon. It's great to be here. Thank you for including me. I have looked forward to this afternoon uh, from the moment it was put on my calendar. So thank you for having me.
0: You're absolutely welcome. And we feel the same way. Uh, Today, we are totally focused on student clarity and specifically the five essential practices that empower teachers and leaders in schools. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Dr. Moro?
1: Absolutely, and I love this bio because it starts with a a really nice story. When John was 10 years old, he walked down the halls of Stewart's Draft Middle School to find his locker and classes on what he believed was a normal back-to-school night. However, the moment he walked through the doorframe of room 30, he met his sixth-grade science teacher, Miss Cross, From that moment on, he knew he wanted to be a teacher, not just any teacher, but a teacher as influential as Mrs. Cross. That moment in room 30 where he met Ms. Cross still fuels his drive as a teacher today, yet his single greatest accomplishment, if asked, is his family. If you've ever worked with John via Zoom, WebEx, Google Meets, or Teams, you've almost certainly met each member of his immediate family through their impromptu cameo appearances. I think we've all lived through a lot of that through the pandemic. John lives in Waynesboro, Virginia with his wife, Danielle, a fellow educator, their two children, Tessa and Jackson, and Labrador retrievers, Bella, Dukes, and Ollie. I have one Labrador retriever. I don't know how you can keep up with three and Tessa and Jackson affectionately call Miss Cross Grandma Sally. Outside of being a husband and father, John's an associate professor of education in the College of Education at James Madison University, and he works with pre-service teachers and graduate students across multiple teacher preparation programs. He's a best-selling author, uh, and we counted at least 11 books uh, in his repertoire, and he has worked with schools, classrooms, and teachers all over the world helping to translate and apply the science of learning to the classroom, school, and home environments, and really what works best in teaching and learning. that's what we're gonna talk about today. We wanna discuss, John, your book, Clarity for Learning, and what it means for teachers and students, as well as school leaders who are looking for instructional excellence in the classroom. So let's jump right in. Clarity for Learning. You bring with it five essential practices for empowering teachers and students. Can you tell us about these five practices and say whatever you will about learning intentions and success criteria? I think people want to hear about that.
2: Yeah. And and again, thanks for asking that. That's one of my favorite topics. You know, clarity for learning, to step back a bit, um, is a research concept that has been around for quite a while. It was introduced in the 1990s. Um, The idea that students, or classrooms operate more efficiently and effectively when there is clarity around the learning. And and while a lot of our attention is focused on the teacher and clarity, uh, a lot of the work that we've seen uh, come out in the last, gosh, 20 years, um, particularly in the last 10 years, has talked about clarity being two sides of the same coin. While the teacher has to have clarity about learning, it's absolutely essential that the student also have clarity about learning. It is not a one way thing. It is a two sided task that then results in the potential to amplify that learning. And so the practices really came from this idea that we've got to find a way to support ourselves as teachers in the classroom, taking something from research to reality, from potential to practice. And so when you have a construct like teacher clarity. Unpacking it and turning it into teacher moves or teacher practices that we can do each and every day that bring that from ideation to implementation was really the reason for those five practices. And so it requires us to start as teachers gaining clarity about learning. What is it we want our students to learn? Why are we asking them to learn it? And then what does success look like? And then from there, forward sharing that clarity do our students know what they're learning why they're learning it and what success looks like each and every day so how do you feed in those other practices well if i'm engaged in learning clarity requires me to be able to monitor my progress to self-reflect to self-monitor to self-evaluate and so there have to be there has to be checks for understandings woven into that that helped me as a learner see how my progress is moving forward towards the what, why, and how. But as the teacher, I need to gather that evidence so that I can then make just-in-time and just-in-case decisions about where to go next in the next five minutes, the next 15 minutes, or maybe even the next day. And so there's that assessment component and the feedback and, and making sure that we relay information to our learners, but then also we're listening to our learners, For the feedback they're giving us. So that's a new project we're currently working on as we speak. We're unpacking feedback because it's an exchange of information. They're giving us feedback just as we're giving them feedback in the classroom. And then the final practice, of course, is that collaboration, that idea that we can't do this by ourselves. You can't put a math teacher in a room by him or herself and have them do this. It requires a group effort, a collaborative effort that builds the efficacy and credibility of the teachers because we're in this together and we don't want to be in an echo chamber. We want to be side by side with our colleagues uh, digging through the evidence we generate to decide where to go next in teaching. So the practices came from our attempt to translate the research into, into those practices so that they can be implemented in a way that moves that learning forward. Learning intentions and success criteria one of those practices or two of those essential practices involve learning intentions and success criteria. Uh, I will tell you one of the interesting things about it is oftentimes people think that is clarity. Oh, we've got a learning intention. We have a success criteria. We've done clarity. I I don't know where you live, but if you certainly are in Delaware area, 95 is what pops into my mind. And on 95, there are speed limit signs, believe it or not. And those speed limit signs well, they're there, but nobody pays any attention to them unless we see blue lights. And so there's, there's this fear that if we just re- rely on learning intentions and success criteria is something that has to be there and posted, that they will become like speed limit signs on 95. Nobody pays any attention to them until the blue lights flash. And in this case, the blue lights would be the administration of the coaches doing walkthroughs. And then all of a sudden they have value. And so just having learning intentions and success criteria isn't clarity. It's how do we leverage the learning intention and success criteria to inform our decisions about the tasks we design, uh, the checks for understanding we utilize, feedback we provide, and then how we gather it all to decide where to go next. So learning intentions and success criteria, major part of the picture. Learning intentions have an effect size, an average effect size of 0. 0.51, success criteria 0. 0.88. And so they have this incredible potential to move learning forward if they're more than just items on the board, but actually are part of uh, the force driving our decisions in the classroom. And so that's one part of the clarity practice uh, or one of the practices that drives clarity forward in general.
0: John, if you would, can you break that down a little more regarding taking it from the whiteboard or blackboard? Because. You know, teachers recognize learning targets, they're fully aware of standards, that's not necessarily the issue. But I do appreciate you saying translating that for students. And you also have made the claim about, you know, 60% of what we expect students to know, uh, or to learn, they already know. And yeah. so can you dig into that a little bit more? How do we take what's on the whiteboard and make it meaningful and relevant so those learning intentions are clear by using some of the most high leverage practices that we know will make a true difference?
2: Boy, we could talk about this for days. Let me go with a, a basic example. Let's say that your success criteria for the day, the day is to explain what is meant by the fall of an empire. Uh, For example, in Western Civ world cultures, one of the big ideas is what does it mean when we say empires fall? What are the the social, political, economic conditions that lead to the rise and fall of empires? And so today we're gonna introduce, compare and contrast two empires in, in world history and have students start to develop a conceptual understanding about what it means for an empire to fall. And so the, the the success criteria might be, I can compare and contrast two empires through their rise and fall. Um, I can explain what is meant for an empire to fall. So we've got compare and contrast and explain. Those success criteria, those verbs, that particular part of the success criteria, They have incredible power in driving our decisions as teachers and learning as students. So if it's a compare and contrast and explain, it does a couple of things. Number one, it tells me that the assessments and checks for understanding that I select or design and implement, there have lots of opportunities to practice comparing and contrasting and explaining. And my feedback needs to focus on their ability to compare and contrast and explain. So I couldn't do something like a true or false, or a multiple choice, or here we go, see if I can upset the audience. I'm going to stay away from Kahoot, because a Kahoot tells you nothing about learning, nothing about learning, except that the student guessed the right answer. So those aren't good checks for understanding, because you don't know whether they can compare and contrast to explain or not. So right off the bat, it tells me where to look for ideas on checks for understanding and assessment. Number two, it helps me start to craft my learning experiences. If I want students to compare and contrast and explain, then I have to start thinking about what strategies do that? What strategies help build that capacity? Is a lecture an option? Well, it's an option, but it doesn't align with explaining or comparing and contrast. Well, what about reciprocal teaching? Ah. Now, that strategy with an effect size of about 0.74 does give them practice comparing and contrasting and explaining. What about a jigsaw? Uh, What about a concept map? Uh, What about engaging in classroom discussion. So the verbs in the success criteria direct my attention to high leverage practices will move them closer to that particular cognitive activity or cognitive level. But it also tells me which high leverage practices I need to ignore because today that high leverage practice doesn't match the cognitive level of the verb that I'm expecting my students to meet. So that's number two. Number three, it helps me focus my feedback and it helps learners self-monitor and self-reflect on their learning. Here's what I mean by that. If students are comparing and contrasting two empires, then my feedback should be focused on that, not on, well, you know, you shouldn't have written past the red line on the notebook paper. Who cares? That has nothing to do with comparing and contrasting. Well, you shouldn't have used red ink. Remember in this class, you're supposed to use blue or black ink. Again, who cares? That has nothing to do with explaining, right? So it helps us focus our attention on what they need to know, not what is neat to know. So that's key. The fourth thing it does is it helps me as a teacher get feedback from my learners. So when I'm listening to learners explain and compare and contrast, I'm going to listen to their conversations. I'm going to watch their writing. I'm going to observe their actions because what I may know is, oh, wow, I think they get the idea, but they, are, they have some gaps in their vocabulary. That's feedback to me as a teacher that I need to circle back tomorrow and provide some explicit vocabulary instruction or whoa, they get this, but they're having trouble working collaboratively as learners. And so I need to put in a social, emotional learning intention and success criteria here. Or, oh, wait a second, they've got a bunch of ideas, but they're having trouble seeing connections. So, I'm, so in other words, it tells me to look for comparing and contrasting and explaining and the prerequisite skills, concepts, and understandings that may need to be enhanced or worked on so that they're successful. So it's all of those things, those teacher moves, those decisions that started with the simple statement I can compare and contrast, or I can explain. And it opened up all of these other ideas that makes our decision-making more effective and efficient and more focused, not to overuse uh, the name of this particular podcast, on what it is that they're supposed to learn. That's clarity.
1: Well, we like the use of the word focus for sure, and the audience loves that as well. I. I I don't want to gloss over something that you're saying here, John, that I think is critically important for those of us who support and help teachers grow and observe teachers and also any teachers who are listening, which is there's a nuance in asking students to do something, having a task and or answering a question and going around the room and process checking on how much time they have, how much they've gotten done, how much they've written down, how much of the graphic organizer they've filled out, versus really listening to what they're saying, using the vocabulary and summarizing the content, and whether or not they can do what's in the success criteria. I think those are two you know, totally different ways to go about monitoring student progress while they're working. And I think we see a lot of process checking. You got three minutes left, you got 10 minutes left, you didn't fill out this box of the graphic organizer, and not enough really questioning and listening what kids are saying and doing.
2: So I'm going to let a secret out. I'm not sure I'm supposed to do this, but I'm gonna. We've got some new work that's coming out, uh, and it's coming out very, very soon. And what we have found and what we've started to uncover, and we're now verifying this, not confirming, so to speak, but we're looking to make sure we haven't missed something here. What separates teachers that have the trend of high growth and learning year in and year out from those that don't necessarily reach their potential? teachers that experience the trend of high growth and learning each and every year they view themselves as evidence generators they see themselves as teachers who are solely focused on generating as much visible evidence as possible about student learning so that they can take that evidence and interpret it and use it to decide where to go next versus the classrooms that don't live up to their potential. And and teachers, my goodness, the professional knowledge and skill set of teachers is just incredible. It doesn't get enough attention. Um, But what keeps us from reaching that potential is we often leave without any evidence of learning. And so what you just talked about is exactly that. My role is to generate evidence Gather that evidence and interpret that evidence to decide where to go next. And interpreting evidence is not the same thing as grading or evaluating. It's recognizing they're using this terminology and we need them to use this terminology. So I need to adjust. They're getting these facts correct, but they're not seeing the relationship between these concepts. I need to adjust. Our classrooms should be focused on generating, gathering, and interpreting evidence. Classrooms that do that. Show an upward trend that is very different from those that often leave having taught but not generated any evidence of learning.
1: It's a great secret to know and I, it's so important for teachers on the call and, and leaders who observe them to look for and monitor that because quite frankly, a kid could go through an entire period and even entire day and not generate any evidence of their learning because they're listening and doing and working, but we didn't collect any of that. And we certainly didn't analyze or interpret it. We do that during assessment periods, but I don't know that we do it enough through just typical instructional practices. Let me stick on, on that same theme. You talked about the science of, of learning is a topic that you, you work with a lot. You're transitioning to a little more of the science of teaching. Can you answer a little bit about that for us? What are the highest leverage teaching strategies? What does work in the classroom that people should know from both a brain perspective, but also an execution and teaching perspective?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, too. The science of learning, um, (laughs) and and you'll have to pardon my sense of humor. By the way, I'm like this all the time. The science of learning has been around for 160 years, for example, and actually even beyond that. There's a study that was done in 1885. 1885, now you'll have to do the math on that because that far exceeds the 160 years. You've got this study that found that once you learn something, if you don't practice retrieving it, it eventually goes away and you forget it. Well, okay, that's great. But why haven't we done something with that? Why do we still often adopt the one and done approach? Well, somebody said, well, no, no, we don't do what we make them do homework and flashcards. Okay, so then what kind of retrieval practice, that's the concept, is most appropriate? And so some of it is not that we don't know about how people learn. We know how people learn. When somebody says, why, you know, we just don't understand a lot of how people, no, we know so much about how people learn. Our challenge is translating, and here's why it's a challenge. In all studies about the science of learning, they assume a motivated learner, Now I'm going to wait and let that land on a couple of folks. They assume a motivated learner. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know where you teach, but where I teach, that's not a safe assumption. And then number two, we often have science of learning studies that are done in laboratories with a very specific group of participants that may not look like the students in your classroom. So the work that we're doing now is how do we take the science of learning and talk about promising principles that then as teachers, we adapt based on the local context of our classrooms. So retrieval practice. What does retrieval practice look like in high school English versus kindergarten. What does retrieval practice look like in the CTE environment? And how is that different from what retrieval practice looks like say in physical and health education? So retrieval practice, what do we know about encoding? In other words, how does learning have to be encoded initially so that it has the highest probability of lasting longer? What do we know about struggle? A struggle is another promising principle, but what's that fine line between struggle and ticked off? What do we know about things like motivation and selective attention? How do we get students to attend to the essential information? Those are all promising principles. But I will tell you, here's the pivot. And if you'll excuse me for just a second, this is the way I would I think about it in my mind. Many of you have you know about a pendulum. A pendulum is one of those things that we study in high school physics or physical science. And the pendulum has a very specific set of equations that describe periodic motion. A physicist came up with a pendulum. But what happens if that pendulum is responsible for keeping time on a boat in the ocean with waves, wind, and other variables? Well, then the pendulum isn't gonna behave the same way. That's how the science of learning works. research from a laboratory at a university is the pendulum. But putting that research in your 8th grade language arts class is like putting it on a boat with waves, wind, and water. And so I would argue that the teacher or the boat captain knows more about the behavior of the pendulum than the physicist. The teacher knows more about retrieval practice than the researcher at the university. And so our work now is how do we support teachers in translating the science of learning through a science of teaching where they're testing out promising principles, generating evidence of learning to find out what works best in their local context in your classroom, not my classroom, your classroom to support uh, amplifying or accelerating student learning.
0: John, I think our guests and, and those, you know, live and then ultimately listeners to this recording would agree with that. I think it's refreshing to hear because we do consider the classroom very often a lab and where we want teachers to take risks. We want students to take risks, which is not the world we've necessarily created over the last, you know, 15 or so years. To go down this road you're describing, which I think really puts the ownership back on the teacher, but also empowers them. You know, it's not accountability without authority, you know, which we've seen for so long. You know, what are some resources? Because we have so many administrators on this call, what are some resources to best support this work in the classroom, say tomorrow? What are some steps that we could take to support our teachers?
2: So one of the things and this is this is a hard question for me to answer. And so I will tell you, if you're with us this afternoon and if you listen to this later, uh, this is not a sales pitch. If you email me and I have a copy laying around in my office, I will send it to you for free. This was actually the thinking behind the book, How Learning Works. Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry and I decided we needed the support in our own classrooms. Doug and Nancy are in classrooms on a regular basis. I'm in a classroom. I spent all day in one today and I'm still upright for at least the next 30 minutes. But that was the purpose behind the, the book, How Learning Works and building in a way to, to say, okay, where do we start? So that's one resource. The idea behind, okay, pick a promising principle, but the promising principle we pick should be based on where there's a need. If my learners are crushing it in a certain area, then don't tinker with that. It's where I might be struggling to connect that I need to address. That becomes my problem of practice. And so the How Learning Works playbook be a starting point. Let's see, How We Learn by Benedict Carey is a a popular press book that summarizes findings from the science of how we learn. Those are things that you can read and try out. But primarily, one of the resources that would be, I think, incredibly helpful are the individuals in the room. I'm not always sure the purchasing of another book or program is the, the route to take. Instead, it's having opportunities to collaboratively plan and work with our colleagues to talk about that and say, hey, you know, tomorrow I'm teaching the unit circle. And if you're a math person on this podcast, you're well aware that there's nothing worse than having to teach the unit circle to 16-year-olds. It just really doesn't get any worse than that, that there's no authentic connection to a 16-year-old. So talking about what are some strategies, like, how do I make this engaging? What do I do with this? How would you talking it out and generate those ideas? Because in most of the situations we've encountered, the answer's in the room. The answer's in the room. But if you're looking for other resources, uh, John Antonetti and Terry Stice have a book out uh, called Rigorous Task Design that does a beautiful job of summarizing what we know about rigor and how to foster, nurture, and sustain rigor in the classroom. That Those are my go-tos. Uh, those are some of my resources where I would read and then try to figure it out but primarily the answer is in the room and I know that's probably not the best answer or maybe even the answer you were looking for but it's that collaboration and coming together and looking at the evidence we generate identifying who benefited and who did not benefit from our instruction and then addressing that problem of practice using the professional knowledge that's in the room.
1: You know, John, it's a great answer. We've actually hear that a lot. I mean, we'll link to all those things in the show notes, but the answer is in the room and we need the time and space to get the people together to talk about it and to collaborate. Um, I think that's the hard part, right? We know that the answer is here. We just very rare, that's why we have groups like today, people on the call, because they want to come together. They want to learn from experts. They want the resources mostly because they're having to do a lot of this work alone versus having that time and space to collaborate. Although Zoom has introduced a whole new world for us to be able to do things across schools and districts. Let me say, let me ask this. I think it's important. We're talking a lot about teaching, a lot about learning, but there's all kinds of other aspects, like you said, of schooling in the classroom. If you were gonna improve the student experience in every school in America, across the world, what would you want us to
2: focus on? Uh, this, this answer might surprise you. Um, it's gonna take a hard left turn. Um, it is very difficult to learn in an environment in which you do not feel that you belong. And I'm going to say that again. It is very difficult to learn in an environment which you don't feel like you belong. And I find that troubling. And I don't mean to make this inappropriate or, but you kind of, look, they're eight, they're 12, they're 16. They're trying to figure out who they are. And so first things first Do we present the learning environment, the school environment, as a welcoming environment that embraces learners based on their strengths and assets and supports them as they are beginning to construct their identity of who they are? If I'm in a threatening environment, I do not give one rip about sine squared plus cosine squared equals one. I don't care about your symbolism in The Great Gatsby. And I certainly am not interested in reading that chapter. And so one of the things I think we have to start with is what does the classroom community look like, feel like, and sound like, and all all of our students included? Are they welcomed as valuable members? Are they actively engaged in the learning? And are they supported in a way that gives everyone the opportunity to succeed? And I know that may not have been where you were going, but the starting point is providing a classroom in which students feel like they belong, and they can be there and, and be this the cells that they are that day. Right because they're there's they're 12. They're 16. They may leave tomorrow watch something on TV and come back and their identity has completely shifted, because they're 16. Right. And that's the beauty of it. That's the messiness of it. And that's so I would say classroom cohesion, belongingness, the elimination of stereotype threat, and recognizing an asset based approach, not a deficit based environment. That would be the first change I would make. And I would want to see Uh, after that, then they're more likely to learn fractions, symbolism, and read that chapter.
0: So, with that, John, you've been incredibly influential in your career. You just said you've been in a classroom all day, which we appreciate. I think that informs your work immensely and I think speaks to what you said earlier regarding, you know, if, if you're someone is just in a higher ed institution, they're not out and about, you know, it is within the classroom where you get that level of expertise and insight. For you to make to make you feel like you've made or contributed to make a good impact or a great impact, what would you like
2: the next three to five years to look like? That's a tough question. So I think about it in terms of of steps and and I don't mean to be cliche and I certainly don't mean to throw out platitudes, um, but I reminded of the little fellow that was on the beach throwing starfish back into the ocean. And the old curmudgeon comes along and says, why are you throwing a starfish into the ocean? They're just going to wash back up. What, what difference does it make? And the little fellow says, well, it made a difference to this one. And he throws it back in the ocean. I think it's, it's overwhelming to think of our impact, our impact, in terms of the big educational system. Instead, I think it's important to look at it in terms of each and every day. So for me, did my conversation, uh, did my engagement, did my interaction, um, did my feedback, uh, did my decisions today make uh, the learning environment of the classroom a better place for the learner, at least one learner that was in that environment, and did it empower them uh, to go out on their own and take the next step. And I think if we do that every day, then that's an accumulative impact. Um, And so in three to five years, I hope I hope that it looks this way. It doesn't show up in a book. It doesn't show up in a grant. It doesn't show up in some new academic title that the university has invented. Um, It doesn't show up in, in in an award. It shows up in the form of an email. Um, or running into somebody in Walmart that says, hey, what you did three years ago in class on such and such, I still remember that, or that made me think about things a bit differently. That may be altruistic, it may be a platitude, but that's the way I look at it. My favorite thing in the world to do is run into somebody in Walmart and have them say, I remember this and then have them recall something because at the end of the day, if what we do in our schools and classrooms makes it to the dinner table, we win. We win. Well,
1: John, I think that's a great message to end with. It's an inspirational one for sure. What's awesome about focus set is we always get inspiration. We get aspiration. We get technical tips. We get resources. And, I, you know, that's why people keep coming back. This has been a great episode, an awesome interview, lots to take away for leaders. Is there
2: anything else that you would like to add or conclude with? I think now more than ever, we have to maintain our focus. Again, not to overuse that term, but it's a great term. We have to maintain our focus and separating what really matters most from the noise Uh, of things that are created, Um, and that requires us, I think, to zero in on what do I have control over professionally and personally, and what is it that I don't have control over, I'm never going to have control over, and so I'm going to have to learn to operate within that system, and so I think a lot of the work uh, that I get to engage in with with colleagues really zeroes in on um, what works best, but in parentheses, and I have control over it. And so I may not have control over what's happening in national, international news or or events, but I have control over how I interact with every child I encounter on a daily basis and every teacher that is in my building um, or every colleague that's in my office complex. Those things I have control over. And so that's where we go to the research and say, what is going to maximize the time I have? And then what is it that I can do about it? And if I can't do anything about stuff, I've got to learn to let it go. Otherwise I'm going to get eaten alive with stress and it's going to start to trickle down. And so for me, it's been a struggle, but it's been one that has been valuable. How I interact with every person I encounter on a daily basis in a school, I have control over that. And so I want to make sure I'm using what works best at the right time, in the right place, with the, with the right experience that would be the final message.
1: And it's a good one. What works best in parentheses that I have control over. It's a it's a great final message, John. Fantastic. Everybody, you heard it here on Focus Ed. Dr. John Almarode everyone, a virtual round of applause from our live audience. Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcast blog posts, books to read and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, Stay focused. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days?
0: What's that, TJ?
1: Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know
0: what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about you know getting a good night's sleep. But you know, do tell how do we go about getting better sleep?
1: Well, I think that's part of your problem, is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend. GhostBed, our sponsor, with 30,000-plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed.
0: That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a 101-night at-home sleep trial and a two-times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you.
1: And with free shipping... Within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout.
0: Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest.
1: Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code. At ghostbed.com, a hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it, ghostbed.com.